Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and today you'll hear me talk with Neil Whitman about the most interesting language stories that caught our eye in the news. We talked about a new study that showed how people who speak certain kinds of languages have a better memory, how having a word for both light blue and dark blue can help people pick out colors faster, and how language programs around the country are being cut. Plus, at the end, we shared the origin stories of Squiggly, Aardvark, and Fenster, the characters you always hear about in the example sentences. I hope you enjoy it. But first, I have a contest to tell you about. Grammar Girl is part of the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network, and to celebrate the network reaching the 300 million download milestone, you can enter to win a one-on-one web call with me. It's a long URL, so I'll just put it in the show notes, but it's also the pinned tweet right now at the Quick and Dirty Tips Twitter account, which is just Quick Dirty Tips. And now, on to the show. Hi, Neil. It's great to be here with you today. Hey, Mignon. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for the listeners to hear your voice. You've been (laughs) writing um, scripts for me for so long. I think it's going to be such a treat for them to actually hear you. Uh, Well, uh, we'll see. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, as, as I said in the intro, there are language stories that we see all the time that we don't really get to talk about in the podcast because they don't just fit the script format so, so well. And so we're going to see what it's like today to just talk about some interesting things that, that we've seen in language in the last month or so. You might remember that a while ago, Neil wrote a script for the show about um, whether language influences thought. And this is a controversial topic, and we said that then. And uh, well, maybe so, but I mean, it's, it's the Whorfian hypothesis, as it's sometimes called, or the, or the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. It's been one of these uh, topics that uh, it's been skunked, I think, to use a, uh, you know, <laughs> a a grammar term, you know, like a word that no matter which way you use it, you're not going to you, you, somebody's going to get mad, and so you might as well just stay away from it. And so, um, right. and there was so much just uh, badly done claims about uh, you know language influencing thought in the early 20th century that you know for a long time it's been this topic that linguists don't don't like to touch because they're they're just asking to be you know disrespected and not taken seriously, and so uh, and so Lara Boroditsky she she decided to go there and uh, and now she right. is sort she sort of owns that uh, that space she's the the foremost person uh, on this she's the one that she has a the reputation of you know even if you don't buy the whole Horpianism thing you, you got to give some respect to how she you know sets up the experiments and tries to control for various things that uh, that, that might be going on and so yeah in the, in the script that um, that I did for you that uh, you ran a little while ago she was featured prominently. She um, she has that TED Talk. She's been on Hidden Brain. And at first I thought this was just more of the same, but it turns out, no, this is, uh, you know, this this is new stuff. So yeah, it, uh, this is not one that she wrote, but this being um, a topic of, of interest to her, she, uh, you know, she she noticed this and, and read it and tweeted it. And this, uh, it's the word order of languages predicts native speakers working memory. Looks like it was published uh, just this month, just February. And it's by uh, Federica Amici, uh, Alex Sanchez Amaro, Carla Sebastian Enesco, Trix Cacchioni, Matthias Alritz, 
Juan Salazar Barney and Federico Rosano. I sh- Federico Rosano. I probably just right. should have said Amici at all, but, uh, but, but there they all are. <laughs> we want to give everyone credit, yeah. having been a graduate student myself. So it talks about left-branching speaker, speakers of left-branching languages and I think speakers of right-branching languages. Can you, can you explain what that means? Yeah, so, uh, so, so right-branching and uh, left-branching, it has to do with how we draw the diagrams for these uh for these sentences, and so uh, and so, as you may know, the, the linguists they, they don't like to use the uh, the boxy sort of Reed Kellogg diagrams that you've uh, that you may have learned in school, but they use these diagrams that look like upside down trees, and hence the word branching. And so, um, right, they're more vertical. Yeah, yeah, they're they're, they're more vertical, and you know, and, and actually, you can think of it like the tree roots instead of the tree branches, <laughs> digging down mm, into the. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. But we don't. But they they call them branches, so that's what we're gonna we're gonna have here. So so they have in the example here, the man who is sitting at the bus stop. So in English, so we have you know the, that's on the left. You know, man, that's to the left of everything else, and then who was sitting at the bus stop? That all comes to the right, but. Some languages, and the example they give here is, is Japanese, they would tend to put that entire relative clause before the noun. So, so if, we, if we did something like this in English, it would be like the who was sitting at the bus stop man. Mm. So the, the subject, the key agent in the sentence, is the one you have to wait till the end to figure out who that is. Right. Or in this case, the the noun that this relative clause is describing, you know, the who is sitting at the bus stop Man, woman, girl, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cat. <laughs> you just have to wait until the end to uh, to get to it, and all this uh, stuff on the uh, uh, all this relative clause all on the left of it. In a picture, you'll see all this stuff on the left, and then the man it, it comes at the end on the very right. And then, in terms of your memory, you have to keep track of all this in your head before you finally find out it's a man or a woman or, or somebody else at the bus stop. So, um, no, so I was saying, it's almost like they're saying that people who speak these languages that sort of push some of the important stuff toward the end, the, um, the left branching languages that it's almost like the speakers are doing a little memory test or a memory game all the time when they're speaking, because they have to hold these things in memory longer than, than we do when we're speaking a language like English, which is a right branching language. Is that, am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's right. So, um, so in the, you know, the man who is sitting at the bus stop in English, we hear, you know, the man, and then we, we already have that picture and then we can add who is sitting at the bus stop and there's less, less load on our memory. But if we say the, who is sitting at the bus stop, Man, you got to be patient and listen through that who is sitting at the bus stop and keep thinking, okay, now now pretty soon there's going to be a noun here talking about what it is that's sitting at the bus stop. Well, the next study I want to see yeah. is if people who speak these languages are more patient. <laughs> Not only are they using their memory more, but they're, they're waiting longer to get the information. Well, I mean, that's one thing that makes these studies different because before, you know, if you've heard about, oh, do languages influence how you, how you think, it's typically been all about, uh, you know, the words. You know, do you have uh, two different words for blue? And if you do, well, does that influence how you see the world? But it's about the colors or the genders. Uh, this t- takes it into just outside the language domain into just memory tasks uh, in general. So as for whether there are more patients in general, <laughs> yeah, that would be an interesting study too. Uh, I guess what would you have to do? You'd have to find a, uh, operationalize the definition of, of patient. <laughs> but, yeah, but, and, and we, had, we had both highlighted this one because it seemed so interesting and it was different. Reading, I think I was reading a different one this morning because it did talk about the two different kinds of blue and they did a study where they, um, they flashed 
10 things a second in front of people and then they wanted to know if they noticed them. And just one tiny little thing that jumped out at me is they said, you will always notice your own name. And I thought that was, that was interesting. It was saying how like certain words have more, I think it was specificity. I'm not sure that's the right word, but certain words have had more something so that you were more likely to notice them and then they were testing these blues. Yeah, this, um, um, so this I think is the one that, uh, yeah, our, our language affects what we see uh, and, it's by, and it's in Scientific American by Catherine Caldwell Harris, PhD, also published yes. in, uh, in January. Yeah, and at first yes, I saw this and I said, oh yeah, the, the, the Russian blue thing. Yeah, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've read about that. But then I looked closer and I realized, oh no, it's, you know, it's, it's different. And how was it different? So they did a, a couple of things here. What you're talking about here, they talk about, they say that's called the attentional blink. That's a concept that I, that I just learned when I read this paper. And um, it has to do with if you catch your name in a, in a rapid series of you know, stimuli, you can, you, you can catch it. But then if it comes quickly again right after that, if it comes too soon, you, you, you don't catch it because your brain's still busy. I don't know, uh, recovering. Hmm, from the excitement of seeing your name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe so. But, and the idea is, to, you know, it, depending on if you have, you know, two words or one word for these, these colors, the length of time where you're likely to miss something if it comes too soon is, is different. And I didn't really look so close at that. The part that I found more interesting was a little bit later, and it said, okay, so Russians have these two different words for blue. They have uh, light blue and dark blue. And I... And I had Google Translate pronounce them for me. <laughs> so, uh, Oh, I did too. <laughs> did you? Okay. <laughs> I went to Youglish, which you uh, recommended to me, and it brought up a uh, Lara Broditsky video. Yeah, the, the two words are Gulaboy and Sini. Gulaboy is light blue, and Simi is dark, dark blue. blue. Okay. So anyway, then this task, they don't even say those words at all. They just, the, the task involves people clicking and dragging various, you know, shapes on a background to somewhere else. And so if, if it's... Uh, you know, uh, a red shape on a on a green background, then it's then it's easy to, to do. If it's a if it's a yellow shape on an orange background, it's a little bit harder to do. And now, what if it's a light blue shape on a dark blue background? Mm-hmm. And, and the idea is, well, if you have uh, different words for these, you're a little bit more proficient in and and quicker in doing that than someone who uh, who doesn't. So basically. Russian speakers were better at determining yeah. picking out blue on blue. Yeah, and 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 Greek it says too. Uh, but German speakers were about uh, at the level of English speakers because they don't have that you know two words for for blue there. And so once again, it, these are two studies that say you know, does does language influence how you think? And they're doing this with with tasks that take go to great lengths to not use the words. But it's fascinating. I mean, these these like like you wrote about before with the east arm and the west arm instead of left and right, and now the, the oh yeah that that was the one that was the one that, yeah you totally have to really change your thinking around to to speak this language you know you you got to change your thinking as she puts it just in order to say how are you doing because instead of saying how are you doing they say hey where are you headed wow. And for that, you got to know your directions. Actually, because of that, I want to jump ahead a tiny bit. And we had thought that we might want to talk about learning a foreign language. And since we are talking about foreign languages, uh, foreign language programs are being cut from universities at an alarming rate. Um, There was an article in CNN, and um, just a lot of foreign language programs are being cut at universities. And, you know, you and I were talking about how 
you know, learning a foreign language really helped us understand more about English and language in general. So I think you said taking Latin. I didn't. I took German, but you took Latin, which is harder. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I've tried doing. I took Latin in class. I never took German in classes. I, I did Duolingo German. Mm. <laughs> so very different approaches. So. But yeah, um, I took Latin in high school. We were living in El Paso and uh, El Paso, Texas, and. I took Spanish in seventh and eighth grade and learned a little bit about it there. But you know, like we learned the present tense, and then we got into the uh, you know the, the preterite tense. But beyond that, I, I really wasn't too interested in learning much more about it. I, I, I like the class, but you know, imperfect tense, like oh, that, that's just something in the appendix of the book, and we don't have to learn about that. So I, so I just kind of ignored it. But I, I remember walking home with my you know stack of textbooks in my hand in my arms. And just uh, looking through the the Latin textbook on the way home, and uh, in the very first page it talks about declensions. I said, "What? What the? What? What on earth are you talking about?" <laughs> hmm. And so, uh, and so that's what uh, prompted me to look at the back of our uh, of our dictionary, just our, uh, which had a sort of a grammar appendix in the back, and that's when I learned about the different tenses, uh, you know, present past, the uh, present perfect, past perfect, future past, future perfect, and and other things like that. And uh, and I just, it, maybe that was the right time in my life. I, I just found it really uh, interesting. And then when I showed up at school a week later and we started learning it in Latin, I just, I just found every bit of it really interesting and then looked back at English and drew comparisons and things. And uh, if I'd been, if I'd lived a few hundred years ago, I totally would have been one of those people that, uh, you know, that, that, complained about how English grammar was all sloppy and bad because it wasn't like Latin, you know. Uh, yeah, and I took German, and I distinctly remember that was where I really, where parts of speech really clicked in my mind, the the nouns and the verbs and the adverbs and the adjectives and, and just the real basics it is really, I didn't, I didn't really learn that until I started taking a foreign language. And I hear that from a lot of listeners that, that they really didn't get a good understanding of English grammar, like grammar per se, until they took a foreign language. And um, this article in CNN says that um, 651 foreign language offerings have been terminated uh, between just in three years, between 2013 and 2016. And um, French took the biggest hit. French was apparently being canceled all over the place. <laughs> and But then also wow. Spanish and Italian. And Spanish really surprised me because, you know, at least where I live on the West Coast, you know, that's the most useful language that I could learn. I'm actually trying to learn Spanish. I did not realize that. I'm on, um, I mean, I'm, a, I'm on our local school board here. And one of the things that, uh, you know, that I wanted to see happen was, uh, you know, increased foreign language offerings in our school. And I'm happy to see that, you know, they, they are on the increase. By the way, uh, in it, apparently, you know, in educational circles these days, uh, it's, it's preferred to call them world languages hmm. um, because, you know, hey, foreign language, that's, well, how, how U.S.-centric, you know, because <laughs> Spanish is not a foreign language to people who live in Mexico and Spain and, that's <laughs> true. and, and you know, in and, and South America. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, foreign language, world language, um, but Chinese is uh, is quite popular, and uh, it's taught online uh, mostly uh, or, or remotely. And then sometimes, and then, and every year, there's uh, some students that will actually make a uh, you know a field trip to China. Mm, that'd be so fun. 
So uh, now we're going to talk about something that Neil told me is called one form, one meaning. And I noticed when I have an article about the two different spellings of gray, the spelling with an A that predominates in America and the spelling with E that predominates in England. But when I post that, I always get comments on the Facebook post or the tweet. People think that those two different spellings are two different shades of gray. And they're, they're not as far as the formal definitions go. And it always blows my mind. And it happens every time. And I mentioned it to Neil. And then you mentioned, you've noticed the same thing. Well, yeah, it's actually something that's, uh, you know, well known and, uh, amongst linguists. And um, the, the term one form, one meaning is a, a nickname given to it by um, the linguist Arnold Zwicky. At least I think he originated it. He's um, uh, an emeritus professor from Ohio State and Stanford, and he has a, a, a linguistics blog. But uh, but he he likes giving nicknames to various uh, you know linguistic phenomena. So this one's yeah one form one meaning or or OFOM as he as he writes it. But it was originally I think it's said uh, best by um, a linguist named Dwight Bollinger, and it's and it's one of these quotes or paraphrases I see several times, and, and but I've never actually seen the original source that it came from, but. But the idea is, yeah, there, there's it, it, there's no such thing as a true synonym or, or no such thing as a perfect synonym. Uh, so even with something that you just think is, uh, you know, when, when, when you're giving examples of synonyms, you'll probably say something like, oh, well, you know, uh, couch and sofa, those are synonyms. But when you look closer, you realize, well, mm, no, um, that thing we rescued from uh, from a, a fraternity house uh, front yard one time, and, and now we have it on the front porch. Uh, that would be a couch. We wouldn't call that a sofa, you know. But but uh, when I go home and visit my mom in the living room, yeah, that's that's a sofa, you know. <laughs> um, right, and it's or, so interesting uh, because they aren't part of the formal definitions. You know, for like, like, here's an example of a comment on gray versus gray. This is um, Coffee Quills from Twitter said, I always saw gray with an A as a harsh color. The steel of daggers, for example. Gray with an E is softer, smoother, moonbeams raining into the room as I go to sleep. Like, in in her, his or her mind, these are two completely different colors. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I never got that, but that's not because I'm I'm immune to this, uh, you know, this, this kind of thinking, because I realized that I fell right into it myself, you know, as a child, hard candy on a stick. All right. So mm -hmm. what, what do you call that? Yeah, I think I'd call it uh, a sucker. Okay. And, uh, and so do I, but I also call it lollipop. And, and I, and I had both, I learned both these words as a, as a child. And what must have happened, I think is the first time I, you know, had the word lollipop, somebody, you know, I had a spherical lump of hard candy on a stick. Mm -hmm. And the first time I had a sucker, I had a, a disc-shaped hard candy on a stick. So I said, aha, mm, you know, like if a, it's flat. Like a flat circle, yeah. If it, yeah, if it's flat, it's a sucker. If it's like a ball, it's a, it's a lollipop. Yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> and then I just went along with that distinction in my head, and nobody was ever the wiser, because that's how a lot of language change happens. People have different meanings or different, you know, analyses of things in their head, and, and they never come to light until, you know, one day there's a misunderstanding. And so, uh, and I think in, it was in high school when the drill team was selling, you know, blow pops as, uh, as, as, fun, as a fundraiser. And I'd hear person after person telling the, someone telling him, hey, yeah, give me a sucker. Yeah, I want to buy a sucker. And I would silently think, why are they, why do they keep 
calling them suckers. You know what? They're, they're lollipops. Stop calling them suckers. <laughs> and finally, you know, I, it, it bugged me enough that I said to a friend of mine, like, why do they keep calling suckers? Did they just not like the word lollipop or something? <laughs> and that's when I found out that my understanding of the meaning of lollipop and sucker was not shared by you know by my friend or and and possibly by by anybody else <laughs> so yeah most people would think they were the same thing just a different name for the yeah. same thing i, I so wonder just, i bet the i bet the lollipop one is more common because of the um tootsie pop commercials well i mean you'd think that but i mean here is a whole to, there's tootsie pops and these charms blow pops and they actually have the word pop right in the name and people yeah. were still calling them suckers so. <laughs> And I guess it's just, you know, what, what you happen to, it's like imprinting, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like you were saying, the it's almost like our brains want to assign different meanings. If there are two different words, we want there to be two different meanings. We, we don't like the idea that there are two words for the identical thing. Uh, yeah, it's like, what you know, why would we do this? Why would we have, you know, why create extra work for ourselves? There, there's got to be some reason for for having this, so. And, and you and I both noticed another one for woe. So there's W-H-O-A, which is the proper spelling of the word woe, but then more and more people are starting to, I call it a misspelling, is W-O-A-H. And so I have another article that's, you know, woe, woe versus woe, and the one with H-O in the middle is right. But I always get comments. People think that they mean different things. And you had noticed the same thing um, on, a, on a different blog. I, I mean, I hadn't noticed it, but uh, my, a friend of, uh, of my brother, of my brother Glenn, uh, he posted something on his Facebook page, and um, he said, <laughs> uh, help an old dude out here. When did whoa, W-H-O-A, become whoa, W-O-A-H? It's, uh, it's a chance to watch an accepted spelling change right before our eyes. Yeah, and Kitty Murdy said what, what I hear a lot. She said, I thought woe, W-H-O-A, was the one you used to rein in your horse, and woe, W-O-A-H, is an exclamation. And I hear people saying, like, it's like when Keanu Reeves says, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> like, they think it's spelled the other way. <laughs> yeah, and the and same um, communication is, uh, yeah, one guy, uh, another commenter says, one is for communicating with horses, the other with people. Now, he doesn't say which one is which. But I thought there was one one commenter in here that had the same distinction, but it went in the opposite direction. Like, yeah, yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah, so <laughs> same with gray. People don't think they're the same different colors. They they think they're they can be all over the board, but they're just always they they're different. But and with woe and woe, it, again, like it's not consistently what they mean, but that they but that they always. Not always, because most people, it's, it's a minority of people who think they have different meanings. But, but when people do think they have different meanings, they aren't always the same different meanings. So it, it's Yeah, yeah, they, they, they create their own distinctions, and they, and they don't always match with each other. Actually, Glenn had some interesting speculation on why this might have happened. He said it's a couple of things. You know, one, the wa and hua merger. So, uh, you know, for, for most English speakers these days, hmm. uh, W-H- is pronounced just exactly the same as W. Now, I think our family has preserved the distinction because it's, it's in our name. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but when I say, you know, my name's, you know, Whitman, it, it'll get spelled W-I-T-T-M-A-N, or, and, and then they'll say, oh, you know, is it is it W-I-T-T-M-A-N? And I'll say, no, 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 Whitman. And they'll say, oh, 
Quitman, mm-hmm. Q-U-I-T-M-A-N. Mm-hmm. They just oh, no. when they when they hear the the H in there, they think it's the H that you get when you when you have uh, you know a K or a P or a T sound at the beginning of a word. So um, wow. and so as a result, W-H is just like many other combinations with uh, with a consonant plus H that just seems to be kind of randomly in there because if you unless you you happen to know the spelling rules of the language where it came from. And if you don't quite remember where the H goes, you just put it in there somewhere. And that's why, for example, you, you get you know you get Gandhi spelled with uh, uh, an H after the G, an H after the D, or sometimes both. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, or or Kazakhstan, you'll get you know an H after one K or the other K or both Ks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like yeah, just just put it in there somewhere. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I think we're we're about ready to wrap up, and I would love to end by talking about Squiggly, Aardvark, and Fenster because I I created Squiggly and Aardvark, and people often wonder where they came from. Uh, but you have invented Fenster, who is a character we use in our example sentences a lot. So do you want to share the the origin of our wonderful Fenster? Well, uh, well, I mean, first, what about the origin of uh, Squiggly and Aardvark? I mean, when when I heard the name. Aardvark, I figured, oh, that's it's an aardvark, and for Squiggly, uh, the first thing I thought was like Lenny and Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley, and then I, oh no, it's Squiggly, and and I pictured it maybe it's a squid or something, you know, um, and then eventually oh. I, you mentioned that you know that Squiggly was a snail, or or maybe I I picked up one of your books and realized that. So where did you get aardvark and Squiggly? <laughs> Yeah, so Squiggly is a yellow snail because um, I spent a lot of years at UC Santa Cruz. My husband went to grad school there, and we lived in Santa Cruz for many years. And the mascot is a is a snail, a yellow a slug, actually the banana, banana slug, slug. Yes, <laughs> but it looks like it, it looks like a yellow snail, and he's adorable. And there are cartoons all over town of the 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 banana slug. And so in my mind. His name isn't Squiggly. I forget what it is, but I always thought of him as Squiggly. And and it just popped into my head when I was thinking of characters for the uh, podcast. So Squiggly is a yellow snail based on the UC Santa Cruz banana slug, which is a fabulous mascot That's <laughs> for <true>. a school. <laughs> and just so unusual and so fitting. And there are banana slugs all around Santa Cruz, and they are bright yellow. And then um, Aardvark is just Aardvark is a blue Aardvark, and I don't know, I just thought Aardvark was a really funny name. And I, years later, I had a comedy writer uh, do a piece for me about what makes words funny, and he actually said words with Ks and Qs are inherently funny. <laughs> so squiggly with the Q and Aardvark with the K are apparently inherently funny names. And probably my favorite story is, I know that I have listeners all over the world and that some people use the podcast to learn English, and someone from China once asked me if a squiggly was a common American <laughs> name. And I wanted so much to say yes, but but I didn't. I told the truth and I said, no, it's just a funny name I made up. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, I, I was just thinking now, squig- it's it's related to like squiggle, kind of like a, a snail shell looks like a little squiggle you might draw, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but in, in squiggle, the ul is a, is a syllable all by itself. But when you add e to it, you don't end up with three syllables, squiggly, it's squiggly, and all of a sudden the L magically transforms back into that's true. a consonant. That's true. Yeah, and, and kind of cool. Yeah, kind of like you know. You, yeah, and also in my mind, they're they're like they're buddies. They're like Bert and Ernie or Felix and oh, I forget his name now. Uh, the odd couple. 
Oh, Oscar. Oscar and Felix. Oscar, yeah, yeah. They're sort of antagonistic buddies who, you know, play off each other. So, And Squiggly loves yeah. chocolate, and he's kind of lazy, and Aardvark's grumpy, and he likes to fish. So, yeah, so I would I would hear these in examples. And then I think uh, there was also, like, a Sir Fragalot. Oh, right, yeah, Sir Fragalot, who shouts out sentence fragments. Yes, his job is to shout out yes, sentence yeah. fragments. <laughs> I, yeah, we haven't we haven't heard from from him in quite some time. That's true, that's I true. I haven't been inspired to include him in the episodes I read. But yeah, so I think probably I needed a another character in there because maybe it was because I I was talking about you know indirect objects, and so you know for a sentence with an indirect object, well you you need you need a subject, you need a direct object at least, and then you know and then a an indirect object. So you got three participants, and so you, you had Squiggly and Aardvark. And so I just said, all right, I need to put in somebody else. <laughs> and so, uh, and so, yeah. So Fenster is uh, is a cat, and this comes from when uh, my uh, my wife Amanda and I uh, were just in our first you know, you know couple of years of marriage, living in an area in just north of downtown Columbus, Ohio, called Victorian Village. There was a corner store, corner drugstore. Which, uh, which now I know that, that uh, they're called bodegas, mm-hmm. or at least in New York, that's what they call them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, that was a word I didn't have in my vocabulary at the time. But we would sometimes go walking around the neighborhoods, and like, um, and like in New York, some of these cats like to sit in the windows. And so there were two cats that would sit in the window of this, of this bodega, and, uh, and one of them was black and white. And, um, and Amanda loves cats. Uh, we, we have several, you know, so she... Went in and asked the uh, proprietor what the, what that cat's name was, and he said, "Oh, you know, his his name is Bloomers because it looks like he's wearing bloomers. Mm-hmm. He's sort of old fashioned." And then the other one, I think, was kind of an orange one, and that one uh, he said was named Fenster. And I just thought that was kind of a uh, a funny name. When when I started learning German on Duolingo, I learned that you know Fenster, das Fenster, is a uh, window. Right. So I wonder if that's why they name him Fenster. Yeah. And so when I needed a name, I just I just put in uh, I put in Fenster. And so I don't know who you picture when you picture Fenster, but when I do, I picture just you know um, a cat interacting with uh, the snail and the aardvark. Yeah, join join the join the buddy group. Um, yeah, and I, it made me think because yeah because I did take German, so I knew Fenster was window. And I was trying to think of English words that um, have the same root, and the only one I could think of was defenestration, which means to throw someone out the window. Um, the act of throwing someone <laughs> out the window. And um, it, you see it on a lot of like favorite word lists and stuff like that, but I never looked it up before. And it comes from Latin. The Latin word for window is also fenestra. So similar to the German, I assume they're related. I don't know for sure, but it had a great story. So this is from Adam Online. Defenestration is a word invented for one incident, the defenestration of Prague in 1618, when two Catholic deputies to the Bohemian National Assembly and a secretary were tossed out the window of a castle um, and goes on and on. And this this marked the start of the Thirty Years' War. And apparently they landed on a trash heap and survived. So this is all from Edom Online, but like it, it was a word invented for one specific event that started the Thirty Years' War. I thought that was amazing. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that that was the event. What I'd heard about, you know, defenestration is, aside from what it means, is people saying, "Oh, well, you know, that's a word that people don't actually use. They just like to trot it out and say, you know, here's what it means." Mm-hmm. But I have actually heard it used more recently. In fact, I, I just looked it up right now. Bill Browder 
a guy who uh, who's who's the driving force behind what's known as the the Magnitsky Act. Oh, I knew, I knew. Uh, the name. Some yeah, uh, 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 Russian uh, or sanctions on Russian oligarchs, so they can't get their money. And Bill Browder, uh, Sergei Magnitsky, was his lawyer in mm-hmm. uh, in Russia, trying to help him, you know, sort out you know some some fraud and tax stuff that was going on with him. And um, Sergei Magnitsky uh, was thrown out of the window of his building, and that's how he was murdered. Oh, no. And, uh, yeah, yeah. in fact, this, this Magnitsky Act, if you want to, you know, <laughs> for those of you listeners who want to go, you know, political, feel free to go, you know, Google that and, and, and find out more than you ever wanted to know about Russia and sanctions and, and whatever else. But uh, I'm looking at an article here from the Daily Beast from two years ago, and here it is in a, in a sentence. It says, um, let's see, according uh, Bill Browder, a noted Putin critic, uh, says that Nikolai Gorokov is in the intensive care unit of Botkin Hospital in Moscow with severe head injuries after allegedly being defenestrated from his building. Oh, my gosh. Oh, so I thought it was Magnitsky that was killed that way, but this guy, maybe, maybe it's a similar M.O. Uh, this guy, at least uh, two years ago, was in the intensive care unit of a hospital. But but it's uh, but it's, it's actually a past tense of the verb, defenestrated. Well, let's hope there aren't many more uh, opportunities for that to be used in in real articles. and not. It's better when people just trot it out because it's fun to say or they want to use it than if there are real reasons to use it. Yeah. But I'm sorry. Yeah, aside from the turn from the serious, I have heard uh, other one other word with uh, you know that Latin root in there, and that's just the pure and simple Latin borrowing, fenestra, which... Oh. Um, I remember from my anatomy class in college, it's it's a name applied to a few a few holes in your skull. I think where various cranial nerves go in or out, or I don't know. Maybe some uh, medical students can uh, can can reach out to you and tell you, you know, what what holes in the human body are called, uh, you know, fenestra. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for for chatting with me today. This has been great. Yes, it's been great fun. Thank you. Yeah, I hope the listeners enjoy getting to know you a little better. And you also you have also um, you have two at least two pieces coming up um, scripts that you've delivered that'll show up in the podcast in the coming weeks. One about what well, we're calling it witness. It's about some complicated sort of grammar stuff that's really fascinating. And then I you today just today you sent me your article about the schwa, and I love it. It's going to be great. I love the. I, well, I won't give it away, but but I think listeners have a treat coming with that one. So. Um, yeah. Well, everyone, I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl, uh, and today I was here with Neil Whitman. How do you? What are you? You you're not better known as anything. You are you are Neil Whitman, but uh. <laughs> I'm uh, yeah I'm I'm uh, I'm uh, Neil Whitman, known on uh, on Facebook and Twitter, or actually just on Twitter as uh, Literal Minded. That's also the name of my linguistics blog. And then when I'm not doing that, I'm I'm teaching uh, English as a second language to uh, to graduate students here at Ohio State. Fabulous. Well, you can find uh, me at quickanddirtytips.com, and that's all. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>